0: Home prices in San Diego take another dip.
1: It's not like a big collapse, but it's been sort of like a drip, drip, drip of just slowing down.
0: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. El Cajon doubles down on threats to fine motels that take in homeless residents.
2: I can't pee outside, you know, so it's just frustrating. Why would you not want hotels to be helping homeless people?
0: And a close look at the impact airline emissions have on the climate, plus a new show about meeting one big pandemic demand. That's ahead on Midday Edition. For the third straight month, home prices in San Diego have fallen. The median price tag in the region sits as just under $800,000 as San Diego, along with the rest of the nation, continue to show signs of a slowing market. A likely move from the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates is also expected to impact the market, as Fed Chair Jay Powell is set to speak tomorrow on a new policy announcement. Joining me now with more is Phil Molnar, Senior Business Reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, phil welcome back to the program thank you so much for having me okay so we've seen three straight months of declining home prices what is behind this slowdown in the
1: market so mainly it's mortgage rates so they've been climbing up and that kind of cuts into buyers potential purchase power for what they could actually get so homes in san diego county are still really expensive but the more the interest rates go up the less money they have to buy something. So we've seen it slowly. It's not like a big collapse, but it's been sort of like a drip, drip, drip of just slowing down in the market. And recently our our median home price was 799,000 as of August, but it had reached an all-time high of 850,000 in May.
0: You know, the data you point to survey single family home, condos and townhouses. Um, can you give us a breakdown on how prices have changed for each of those?
1: So the resale single-family home, that's the biggest part of our market. So the median of a single-family home, just a resale, not new, is $875,000. That's down from a peak of $950,000 in April. A resale condo, it's a median of $630,000, and that's down from $663,000 in May. And newly built is 885250 is the median right there. And that figure combines single-family homes, townhouses, and condos. So the big thing there was we had a lot of sort of luxury single-family homes open in the last few months, and that's kind of pushing that median up.
0: Wow. I mean, earlier in the year, sellers couldn't keep a home on the market for more than a weekend. Uh, what's the story now?
1: You know, there were so many stories for two years going about how they would put a home on the market and they'd have five offers by the end of the day or 17 offers to figure out by the end of the weekend. Now, some people are dealing with, a lot of times when I talk to real estate agents, it's typically about three offers per home. I mean, that's sort of anecdotal, but that's just what I keep hearing over and over. I talked to a seller in Ramona, who's usually like one of the top agents in the fact that she tends to price her homes a little bit lower than with the market is calling for. But she had a house in Ramona in this kind of nice Black Canyon estates area. And it was more than a million, but it took 45 days to sell. And they did an $86,000 price cut.
0: Despite the slowdown, is it safe at all to say that San Diego's housing market is experiencing anything close to a collapse?
1: No. No. It isn't. It'd make for a funner story, maybe. A lot of heartache, probably, too. We're still pretty close to that all-time high. I mean, we were 850000 Now we're roughly 800000 So it hasn't been that big drop that people are expecting. Uh, someone I talked to for the story called it a soft landing. So that's sort of what's going on in the home market right now.
0: Does San Diego's housing market mirror the situation that other cities across the country are going through?
1: Yeah. So this is a big national thing going on right now. It does seem that more expensive, especially West Coast markets, are sort of hit more. So Redfin shared with me some data that they haven't published yet, but I was able to put it in my story. And they said in August, 49.7% of San Diego County homes had some sort of price reduction on their original listed price. So that's not ones that have sold yet. Those are ones that are still for sale right now. And at some point, they had a some sort of reduction. Could have been a dollar. Could have been 100000 But of the 90 biggest metros, San Diego had the 13th most price reductions. But it's worse in places like Denver, where they had 62% of homes have a price reduction. So put it in context.
0: And just to be clear, I mean, when you look at what's happening in other cities across the country, are prices in San Diego coming down faster than other places?
1: You know, they actually are. So when we looked at the 20 top metros in the Case-Shiller indices, this was a few weeks ago, and San Diego had the fourth fastest price reductions of any market in the U.S. So it is actually going down a little bit quicker. But something to remember is that San Diego has some of the highest home prices in the nation. So even though we're, we're coming down a little bit quicker, it's still not cheaper to move to San Diego than, say, Denver or something like that.
0: You know, we mentioned earlier that the Federal Reserve is set to hike interest rates. How will that affect home prices in the region, you think?
1: Earlier this week, mortgage rates actually hit 6%, which is the highest it's really been in a long time. This report I'm talking about right now from August, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate was 5.22%. So that was enough to really slow the market, like we're talking, that 5% range. So if we see these mortgage rates continue to rise, I mean, I think 6% will be a really significant impact on the market, you know, especially since our homes cost so much.
0: I've been speaking with Phil Molnar, Senior Business Reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune. Phil, as always, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
4: The city of El Cajon says it's standing behind its threats to fine local motels for accepting too many homeless residents. El Cajon says the motels are operating as unauthorized emergency shelters. The motels have been accepting vouchers as part of a San Diego County program to house unsheltered people until permanent housing can be found. El Cajon's threats against the motels have provoked harsh criticism from county leaders, and homeless advocates. Joining me is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome.
5: Great to be here, Maureen.
4: What do El Cajon officials object to about the motels accepting homeless people?
5: So they don't outright object to the motels accepting homeless people. But right now they're saying in this county hotel voucher program, where keep in mind, the county is paying for these rooms. And so some of the local taxes are actually going to the city of El Cajon. uh, But they basically say that there's too many people in these programs, too many people filling up their local motels. And they sort of said, you know well initially they said we didn't know about this program they walked off that said they did know about it but they didn't know that there was this many people involved and when we talk about people involved from the county side we're talking about like just a little over 100 people
4: and there's also been complaints about the number of police and emergency calls that have had to go to those hotels is that correct
5: yeah, there is. And Bill Wells says it's creating Bill Wells, the mayor of El Cajon, saying that it's creating, you know, some public safety issues. The city has to has to pay for this. Um, I, I will note, though, that, you know, the uh, Bill Wells talked about an expansion of this program, a big expansion uh, that they've seen anecdotally. Uh The county pushes back on that. You know, they say when they started this program a little over a year ago, uh there was one hundred and eleven people in it. Uh And now to this day, just a little over a year later, one hundred and twenty one. So not large increases. So they're sort of wondering, you know, where is this coming from?
4: And El Cajon officials also claim that homeless people are being brought in from around the county and placed in these El Cajon motels. What do we know about that?
5: Yeah, Bill Wells says anecdotally, you know, hearing from the police, they, you know, say that they know the homeless people in their community and they're seeing people coming from outside of the community. Now, the county is pushing back against that and they provided us some data. They say in, in that program uh, that's that's in alcohol, those those shelters, 64 percent of those motel rooms are being used by El Cajon residents. Uh, and they say furthermore, 94% of those rooms are being used, uh, by East County residents. Now, Bill Wells is still skeptical of those numbers and he wants to push back on that. But, you know, keep in mind if these people are in these hotels and sort of what they're telling them is, You know, Some of these hotels, a couple of them the city said was nearly 100% full with unsheltered residents. And so they're telling them that they have to cut that to at minimum 25%. And then Bill Wells tells us that they're working on a city ordinance that would make that 15%. So bottom line here, if this goes through, I mean, uh, we've heard it from some people at the county, there's going to be people that are going on the streets.
4: Well, as you mentioned, El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells has been, uh, I guess, the most vocal critic of the number of homeless sheltered in the city's motels. Why does he say he's doing it?
5: He basically says that he's, you know, protecting the interests of El Cajon residents. You know, in in addition to what what we're talking about in terms of some of the public safety concerns, uh, he says that he's basically, you know, doing what the people did to elect him. I'm not working against anybody. I'm working for the people of El Cajon. You know, people, they elected me because they want me to protect their interests.
4: There was a bit of anger associated with the county's response to El Cajon's threats to fine these motels. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, we heard from County Board of Supervisors Chair Nathan Fletcher. You know, he really went after Wells here. Um, you know, he called him a fraud and basically said it's super irresponsible, completely irresponsible for him to be doing this, um, saying that, you know, at the end of the day, this is only going to push people that are having shelter uh, out onto the streets. Uh, so they see this as a, uh, just a, a very, very bad idea. And they're really hopeful that they can work well with the city of El Cajon to just try to, you know, go back to what it was before. Um, and maybe that's more communication. You know, we did hear from Mayor Wells saying, you know, how come the county couldn't have just called us and said that they're going to fill up a hotel room full of uh, uh, full of unsheltered residents? And he suspects that's because they would say no. Uh, but keep in mind, the county doesn't have to get their approval uh, to sort of do this.
4: Now, even Supervisor Joel Anderson, who represents El Cajon, he has been critical of the city's response to the motels, hasn't he?
5: He really has been. And uh, I think it's I think he's frustrated in terms of, you know, he's been trying to do a lot of work out there in the East County, uh, getting those cities to sign an MOU, you know, that are uh, they're experiencing homelessness when people are getting just pushed to like there's like four corners of the city when it's El Cajon, uh, Santee, Unincorporated County. They all, you know, diverge right there. So he's really been trying to get these cities to work together, trying to get them some more funding. Um, and he says programs like this, you know, they work. They get people off of the streets. They work with the case manager. Um, so they're they're trying to find them permanent supportive housing. And he just doesn't understand why it's happening this way and why they're doing it, you know, wh- why they aren't picking up the phone and calling him directly. Um, uh, you know, he's sort of saying that they're communicating via press conferences, which is not a way to get things done.
4: And meanwhile, Matt, the unsheltered people who have a motel room are in the middle of this dispute. Did you get to talk with any of them?
5: We actually did get to talk with one woman. And when you say that they're caught in the middle of this, they they really are, you know, because you have the political disputes going back and forth up at the top. But at the end of the day, you know, whatever the decision is, it's going to impact unsheltered residents. And uh, when we were actually interviewing uh, Bill Wells uh, over there in front of one of these hotels, there was a resident out there that was overhearing uh, that didn't agree with what he was saying. uh, And we were able to speak with her. And for her, you know, she said her name is Don Disney, and she's from El Cajon, lived there since 2002, became homeless in 2013. And, you know, she says that these hotel rooms are a lifesaver for for people like her. She's actually diabetic.
2: I have to take insulin now, and you have to keep it cold. It has to be in the refrigerator. I need, I, I can't be outside, you know, so it's just frustrating. Why would you not want hotels to be helping homeless people?
5: So where is this going to go? Do we know what's going to
4: happen next?
5: So we know that the city and the county, they've been having meetings to kind of flesh some of this out. We know another one of those is coming up later this week. Um, but I'm sure that, you know, attorneys on all sides are, are, are sort of looking at this um, because, you know, you have businesses that are, that are being told that they can't house these people. Um, some of them want to continue in this program. Uh, so I think that there's a lot to come on this. I, I don't think we're at the end point of this yet, Maureen.
4: I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter, Matt Hoffman, and Matt, thank you.
5: Thanks, Maureen.
2: Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news events and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it.
6: This is Port of Entry.
1: The Parker Edison Project.
2: Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again.
4: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. Airlines need to confront their significant impact on carbon emissions by embracing solutions that may upend the industry. That's the key message of a commentary in the magazine Nature from the University of California San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. With airline travel generating a billion tons of CO2 each year, the commentary urges airlines to embrace new and untested solutions joining me is david victor professor of innovation and public policy at the uc san diego school of global policy and strategy and co-author of the book fixing the climate david welcome back to the show
3: it's great to be back
4: let's start by defining the problem as you see it how big a factor are airlines in global carbon emissions
3: Well, as you said in the opener, there are a billion tons of carbon dioxide a year. That's a big number already. And they're rising at 3% per year. So it's one of the most rapidly expanding sectors that affects the global climate. And on top of that, there's new science to suggest that not only do the airplanes affect the climate by emitting carbon dioxide when they burn jet fuel, but they also affect the climate by making contrails, you know, those those wispy white um, clouds that form behind aircraft as they fly at altitude, and it is some science to suggest that the contrails are having an even bigger impact on the climate than the carbon dioxide.
4: I'm going to ask you about the contrails in, in just a minute or so, but I want to talk to you about the fact that there's been a lot of innovation in other aspects of power generation. We have electric cars, etc. Has there been any viable alternative to fossil fuels in the airline industry?
3: Well, not yet, um, and that's one of the reasons we wrote this commentary, is that there's been a lot of innovation in the airline business and the aircraft manufacturers, jet engine manufacturers, a lot of innovation, doing things that already make economic sense, like making airplanes lighter so that they're more fuel efficient, getting more people on the airplane so that you can make more money, much to the chagrin of the passengers. They're really, airplanes are now like buses flying through the sky. So all of that's been in lined up with the incentives of the industry. Uh, But that's had an impact of reducing emissions a little bit, a little bit the margin here and there, but not the really radical reductions in emissions like 80%, 90%, maybe even 100% reduction in emissions that would be needed in order to, to stop climate change.
4: Your paper is critical of the two most familiar ideas that airlines have been using to mitigate their climate impact, that is cleaner fuels and carbon offsetting. Why are you critical of those ideas?
3: Well, we're critical of those two ideas because they're failing right now for two very different reasons. Carbon offsets are really a way to pretend that you're avoiding emissions because you, in addition to causing emissions when you burn jet fuel, you go plant some trees or protect some forests and pretend that that's had an overall impact on the climate. Almost all the evidence suggests that the carbon offsets market is just terrible. It's full of of garbage, really. Uh, Sustainable aviation fuels, changing the fuel... That has promise, but not for the most part with the methods that are being used right now. Right now, for example, people are growing special crops to make sustainable aviation fuel, or they're recycling some of the oils that were used in restaurants. And that can scale a little bit. But those kinds of fuels are way less than 1% of the global fuel market, and they're going to tap out very quickly. And so there could be radical innovations. There's a local company, Viridos in La Jolla, that is making jet fuel from algae. And so is that, if that scales up, that could be very, very promising. There are lots of other interesting ideas. And so with big investments in innovation changing the fuels could help. You may also need to do other kinds of things like change the uh, whole way that the aircraft are flown through the air, change the propulsion technologies from jet fuel to, for example, hydrogen in the future. And those kinds of really radical ideas are getting very little investment right now.
4: Right. Are those the major disruptions that the paper talks about that the airline industry may have to consider in how they operate?
3: Yeah, so there are lots of different disruptive influences and the fact that these are disruptive explains why the incumbent uh, airlines and aircraft manufacturers are not, you know, investing enough in them. Uh, over the short term, we could see disruption, at least for short-haul flight, by simply switching from airplanes to, to trains. That's less of an option in the United States. We don't have much of a train network here, but it's a big option in Europe, and it's being explored. Um, there's been some interest in, in continuing what we all did during the pandemic, which is to have meetings virtually. Uh, people like to be together, so I'm not. Uh, I'm pretty skeptical that's going to scale for the long term. And then some of the up- much more disruptive options, especially for long-haul travel, involve changing the whole propulsion system, hydrogen alignment mentioned, new kinds of replacements for jet fuel. And that could be very disruptive. And in in part because hydrogen powered aircraft, if you use use that example, hydrogen powered aircraft are going to require wholly new designs, wholly new kinds of jet engines, and maybe even different kinds of business models for the aviation business, because it looks like it's going to be a lot more expensive.
4: Let's get back to the airplane contrails you mentioned. It's, It's somewhat an unknown factor in global warming. What kind of impact could they have?
3: Well, they could have a huge impact. And one of the things we we say in the paper that came out this week in Nature is that the uncertainty in the science here isn't a reason not to invest in alternatives. In fact, it's a reason to invest in a wide range of alternatives. Some of the science suggests that contrails are not a huge factor, or if they are a factor, that it might be possible to navigate airplanes around them, so it's around areas that make contrails and, and reduce the impact that way. Some other very credible studies suggest that contrails now are an even bigger impact on the climate than carbon dioxide from burning jet fuel. And if that's true, then we need to find ways to completely alter uh, flight routes, uh, maybe to switch to other kinds of fuels, maybe even engineer some alternatives to jet fuels or switching to hydrogen, because that would then make it possible to eliminate contrail formation or radically reduce it. And that's just a huge area of uncertainty. And I I think one of the challenges in dealing with this industry, the aviation industry, like actually many other industries, is that... Growing number of companies know they need to do something about the problem, but they don't really know what to do. And the uncertainty becomes an extra reason to kind of avoid big investments when in reality, it's a reason why we need to invest in a lot of different diverse solutions because we don't know which ones are going to work, which will be necessary.
4: Well, where do you say the airline industry begins?
3: I think they have to begin, first of all, by working together. You've got a few airlines in the United States, uh, United Airlines probably most visibly, a handful of others, JetBlue to some degree. A few airlines in the United States have said they're going to do things, and mostly what they're doing is buying conventional fuel replacements and buying offsets. And I think what we need to have is the airlines need to team up, at least the airlines that are under the strongest motivation to do something, they need to team up and invest in a wider range of solutions, and they're also going to need help from government. Um, One of the reasons that the Europeans are way out in front of us here in the United States and investing in some of these alternatives is that their governments are under just much stronger pressure to take the climate change problem more seriously. And so they're forcing the um, aircraft manufacturers, for example, and some of the jet engine manufacturers and a lot of the airports to explore different kinds of alternatives. We talk in the paper about, for example, what's happening in Norway with uh, exploration of, of electric powered aircraft for short haul flights. And. Those kinds of diverse ideas are are what we need to invest in more heavily.
4: Would you recommend right now that individuals consider restricting the amount of flying they do?
3: I don't think that's sustainable for the long term. I think people, one of the things we've learned in the pandemic is that people want to be together. uh, And as incomes rise, they're able to afford that travel. We need to find ways to get people together, whether it's for pleasure or for business, while not having as big an impact on the climate.
4: And finally, can you tell us about UC San Diego's public webinar on climate change that's happening this Thursday?
3: Well, thank you very much for that. So on Thursday afternoon at three o'clock, we have a webinar that's about a new book that I co-authored with Chuck Sable at Columbia University called Fixing the Climate. And it's all about how industries like the aviation industry, how industries when they face the need to do something, but they don't know what to do, how they're going to address that. And that's really the central challenge for climate change. And I'll be speaking at it. We have two other professors, George Tynan from the School of Engineering and Jennifer Burney from, from the School of Global Policy and Strategy, talking about What they see in their areas of climate change research. And and Dean Caroline Freund, who's the Dean of the Global Policy and Strategy School at UC San Diego, she'll be moderating the event. People can sign up at gps.ucsd.edu. There's a sign-up form for this webinar at three o'clock on Thursday.
4: I've been speaking with David Victor, Professor of Innovation and Public Policy at the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. David, as always, thank you very much.
3: It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: The U.S. government has renamed hundreds of peaks, lakes, streams, and other geographical sites on federal lands to remove a racist slur for Native American women. Here in San Diego, several landmarks have been renamed to remove the slur. Joining me to talk about the change and what it means is Jolie Proudfit, CSU professor and the first indigenous woman appointed to California's Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. Professor Proudfit, welcome. Thank you for having me. So first, what is this offensive term and what is the history behind it?
7: Well, the offensive term is a racial term, but it's also a term that um, strikes at the heart of Native women. The term is squaw. And so going forward, let me just call it the S term, the S word. Um, And this term is a derogatory term that is used to describe uh, Indigenous women's genitalia. And this has been a word that we have been trying to remove from the American vernacular for decades. And um, when we tell people what it means and how offensive it is, they say, well, that's not what it means to me. And so we don't get to pick and choose the meaning of words. They mean what they mean. And so we're really happy to see that having a secretary of the interior that is a Native woman, our first ever native person to lead the Secretary of the Interior is a native woman, and so she led the charge to remove this name across federal lands, which is wonderful. But it took a a California Indian state legislator, James Ramos, to then put forward a bill here in California to address those state place names that also have that name in its title.
0: What impact do you think having that racist and misogynistic term on public lands has had on the psyche of Native people, especially women?
7: You know, American Indian women and girls have been hypersexualized, over sexualized, and in, in, in our representation in media, in curriculum, in textbooks, in comic books. That's how we've been perceived. And so it doesn't help when you have park names and place names that further add insult to injury. So it's a step in the right direction to address the long legacy of colonization that has really done a number to impact the lives of of women and girls. When you look at missing and murdered Indigenous women and the fact that American Indian women, Indigenous women will be raped, one in three of them will be raped by a non-Native perpetrator, those statistics are alarming. When you over-sexualize a particular racial group a particular people, in this case, Indigenous women and girls, adding insult to injury is the place names that also look to define us by genitalia. So removing that will uplift the the voices of Native women and girls. And let's Let's rename and reclaim spaces to honor Indigenous people. If we want to honor Indigenous women and girls, ask us what we would like to see. You just touched
0: on this, but talk about that some more. How does removing the name help raise awareness about the presence and contributions of Native women and girls?
7: You know, I like to say nothing about us without us right and so it's really important for natives to be in charge of our own narrative how we are perceived and so if we want to move into a place of empowerment for our native women and girls we people have to listen to us what we want to be called and first things we don't want to be called a hypersexualized rude racist misogynistic term so let's just take that off the books But then inviting us to be a part of how do we honor and recognize Native women and girls because the impact, the subconscious impact of racism and misogyny gets into the psyche and it starts with children. These are words that children learn in this country. The term, the S word, the term squaw has been a word that has been a part of the American um, vernacular for decades. And this is something we see in children's literature. This is something we see on the school grounds of children. Let's change the names. Let's change um, the, the racist, misogynistic terms that have been targeted at our women and girls for decades. And let's move to create a safe working and learning environment for all of America's peoples, especially our first citizens.
0: You know, now that uh, landmarks have been renamed, what does removing this offensive word do in terms of making sure public lands and waters are more welcoming and accessible to everyone?
7: You know, in recent years, land acknowledgements have become all the rage, right? They have been um, kind of the feel-good way to open a meeting. And I'm not opposed to land acknowledgements. In fact, I strongly encourage land acknowledgements to happen, especially when they are happening in partnership with working with local tribal communities, because being Native is being in good relations with one another, good relations with the environment. So as we're doing these land acknowledgements and we're looking to rename places and to be more inclusive of the diversity that is California or the US, then we should really look to removing those place names that are racist and offensive and hurtful and harmful. Um, California, for example, is home to more than 140 public schools with Indian mascot names, which are really offensive because you can be a child that goes from kindergarten to high school in certain places in California and always be in a school that um, is an Indian mascot. So if we can rename and reclaim and and look and have an eye towards inclusivity and diversity and justice and equity and a sense of belonging, we should, and we should encourage um, to look at the state's first people, the country's first people, and really uplift the voices of Native women and girls because that hasn't happened. That really hasn't happened, so it's a rich opportunity. And to, and to your point, do you think that, you know, renaming
0: these sites and land acknowledgements, I mean, do they all ring hollow without further action?
7: Of course, we would like to see action accompany words, right? So changing the name of offensive, racist, misogynistic terms is a must. That must happen. But the action is learning the names of the original inhabitants learning the name of indigenous women and girls who have made enormous contributions to our daily lives to our country to our state and so there's a real opportunity um and to do very little to make that happen right so the first step is to take down derogatory names and then the second step is to work in partnership with our tribal communities to select names with meaning, to select names of uh, representation that really uplift the voices of Native peoples. And in this case, I would love to see uh, places and spaces renamed to honor Native women and Native girls. I think that would do a lot for Native women, but I think it would do a lot for all peoples. To learn the rich contributions of Indigenous women to this country.
0: I've been speaking with Professor Jolie Proudfit, Chair of American Indian Studies and Director of the California Indian Culture and Sovereignty Center at CSU. Professor Proudfit, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you.
4: Ensenada is the birthplace of Mexican surfing. It's a rich history that many people don't know about. KPBS Border Reporter Gustavo Solis talked with two local surfers trying to preserve and spread that history.
6: The Baja coast has always had amazing waves, but when Ignacio Félix was growing up in Ensenada during the 1960s, surfboards were a rare commodity.
1: Nosotros de vez en cuando veíamos un americano llegar a Ensenada con una tala en el techo.
6: Felix says that it wasn't like it is today in Ensenada, where surfboards are everywhere. He'd only see them whenever American tourists with boards strapped to the roof of their cars came to town. Felix was among a group of curious children who spent hours at the beach just sitting there on the sand watching the surfers catch waves. As he grew older, Felix's curiosity turned into a passion, and he became one of the original co-founders of the Baja Surf Club, which was the first official club in Mexican history. He remembers being totally starstruck when surfing legends he'd only seen on magazine pages came to Ensenada for a contest that he helped organize. By the time Pete Torres first picked up a board in the 1970s, surfing was becoming more popular in Mexico. But it still had a stigma. He says that it was mostly associated with long hair, hippies, and drugs. Si Mexico has thousands of miles of coastline and several world-class surf spots. Thanks to these natural gifts, it also has a rich surf history full of adventurers who discovered new waves and evangelized the sport down the country's Pacific coast. They also fought a federal government that didn't want them around. But that rich history is not well known. Torres and Jesús Salazar are trying to change that. They started documenting the origins of Mexican surfing through a podcast and Instagram page called Memorabilia del Surfing Mexicano. And that's like the main objective, you know, like to talk about uh, surfing culture, Mexican surfing culture, and to start to give it uh, an identity to Mexican surf, because there is none. The project has taken them to famous beaches of Mazatlán, Guerrero, Oaxaca, and Nayarit. They've tracked down historic photographs and interviewed the pioneers of Mexican surfing. It's amazing to see, to hold the history in your hands. Torres and Salazar say that one of the most important moments in Mexican surf history happened in 1970. Felix and other members of the Baja Surf Club performed well at the 1968 World Championships in Puerto Rico. They put on a bid to host a tournament in 1970. Against all odds, they were awarded the bid ahead of surfing heavyweights like Australia and South Africa. Felix says nobody expected them to actually get the world championship. The governor of Baca, California, and the mayor of Ensenada just couldn't believe it. Como
1: que nos
6: the event was going to put Mexican surfing on the map. But the cultural upheaval of the late 1960s was in full swing. Woodstock had just made international headlines. The Mexican government wasn't interested in a south-of-the-border version of that chaotic scene. So they canceled the contest
1: Pero el gobierno mexicano dijo, "No queremos que se convierta en un lugar donde los hippies de California vengan y
6: lo adopten." Felix says the government didn't want Ensenada to become a campground for California hippies, but that decision derailed the development of competitive surfing in Mexico. Mexican surfers would not go to another world championship until 1988. the year Torres was on the team. Salazar says that it's very important for those who live the history to tell their own stories. Americans have come a lot and and made all kinds of stories about surfing in Mexico, and they tell very little about Mexicans. We feel it's important to get stories about Mexicans out there, you know. We think it's very important. And their efforts are starting to pay off. Salazar and Torres helped research an article on Acapulco surf culture for the latest edition of the Surfer's Journal. They see that collaboration with one of the biggest surfing magazines in the world as recognition of the important work that they're doing. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News.
5: Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today.
0: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Heindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. The early days of the COVID-19 lockdowns and quarantines brought total upheaval to life as we know it. Alongside the tragedy unfolding around us... Some of us spent the early days of the pandemic trying our hand at sewing cloth masks. Comedian, playwright, and performer Christina Wong draws on those times in a new play named as a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in theater. Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord is a solo show about the group of individuals Wong assembles across the country to make homemade masks to meet the urgent demand. Preview performances begin tonight at the La Jolla Playhouse, and it officially opens on Saturday. The playwright and performer Christina Wong spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia dixon Evans and here's their conversation.
8: So this play was inspired by your own reality in the early days of the pandemic when masks were hard to come by. Can you walk us through what that time was like for you?
9: Yes. So I was actually all set to tour another show called Christina Wong for Public Office in that particular show, I'd spent years like researching and running for office and created this whole live rally that was going to tour up until the 2020 November election live. And, you know, I'm shaking hands. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm in people's faces and and suddenly I'm deemed non-essential as all artists are. And I'm home in my underwear in Koreatown trying to figure out, you know, what to do because I'm getting, as everyone was, I was getting emails that, Shows are canceled, uh, stay inside, and I sew my sets and props. Um, That's sort of a signature of my work. I've never made medical equipment before, but I saw, I was tagged in an article saying that hospitals were looking for home-sewn masks, and I had this whole aha moment of, I'm going to sew masks, I'm going to become essential, and um, made a very naive offer to Facebook and Instagram saying, if you need a mask uh, and you're an essential worker or immunocompromised, let me help you. Not realizing that everyone who's been avoiding seeing my shows for years would just come out of the darkness, find me and ask for a mask. So I was overwhelmed with what seemed like a crazy number, like around 200 mask requests at that point, uh, about four days in and was like, I need to get help. I, I can't do this by myself. And it's also just really hard to find materials right now. Because um, stores are closed and the stores that are open are sold out of elastic and cotton fabric. So I start a Facebook sewing group thinking, okay, this is just for three weeks um, until the cargo ships from China show up with masks and the government distributes these masks. I call the group Auntie Sewing Squad. I name it in such a rush. I don't realize that our acronym is ASS. And I end up having to lead this group. Um, it's not like you just start a Facebook group and the masks just show up. But there's a lot of organizing and leadership that needs to happen. And it became clear, this is not just hospitals, but there are all these communities in rural areas, farm workers, indigenous communities that need these masks. So we ended up becoming a 17-month effort. um, And we were doing everything from relief vans to the Navajo Nation, winter coat drives to the Lakota Reservation, um, sending a lot of supplies to the border to migrants who are arriving And we became a network of 800 volunteer aunties across 33 states. That's what I did during my pandemic. (laughs) And (laughs) that's the the story of this show. And at at what point did you realize that you had to make theater out of that moment? About one month into this, people kept saying, this is going to be your next show, isn't it? I'm like, we don't even know if there's ever going to be theater again. We don't even know if there's going to be civilization. Like, this is the last thing I'm thinking about is how to make this funny but it became so clear that what I feel like we were witnessing was a, it was the strangest war where instead of soldiers, I had a battalion of aunties. And instead of machine guns, we had sewing machines. And instead of bullets, we had fabric and, and thread and elastic, right? And and it just felt like the things I was witnessing and that the other aunties aunties were witnessing of this pandemic from the proximity of being You know, someone who would just, we have these skills that were passed down that could save someone's lives. It was just sort of incredible, but also I think what I was witnessing was a very specific generosity. And I think for some people who couldn't understand that, that's why I wanted to make a show is to really show them like there's this moment in our history that was awful but what i saw in this moment was this incredible generosity i had friendships that i i have friendships with people i've not even met them in person yet but i feel like so much love and respect for them because they were willing to basically you know put their own health at risk going to the post office picking up materials um sewing into the night to to protect people they'd never met before and that sort of reality, that sort of invisible labor that is sowing, I really wanted to put meaning to. And I really wanted to, um, I also really wanted to show that in this moment where people are so angry at Asian-Americans because they think that somehow we brought this virus here, that there are all these Asian-Americans who are actually stepping up and, and trying to protect frontline workers, trying to keep this country safe. So for me that's when it became very clear that there was probably a show here because we were living an experience that was very different than maybe a lot of people who were using the time to catch up on Netflix or <laughs> going through divorces not some of our aunties went through divorces but you know like it just was so, so specific and so worth sharing
8: this is a play that's also about family and and particularly women. What did you want to explore with those relationships and friendships and these generational bonds when it comes to skills like this, like
9: sewing? I think like when we think of heroes or we think of people who are out to protect us, we think like big, strong, burly men with guns. And there is all this caretaking that happens among aunties and to me, I love the term auntie, at least at this age in my life, because I don't have children, I'm not married, and it sure beats words like spinster or old maid, you know, to be called auntie by people, the term of respect. And that was sort of the gift of naming this group in a rush, Auntie Sewing Squad, is there was so much pride Um in being called an auntie, and so much of a sweetness, and, like I could order people around, go aunties, I need you so faster, please aunties, you know. Versus, hey volunteers, keep sewing, right? There's there's something much sweeter and familial uh, about that. And it's widely believed that messaging from then
8: President Donald Trump led to waves of racism, hate crimes, violence towards Asian Americans, like specifically his use of the term "China virus." I'm wondering how you approach this in the play.
9: So here's this terrible irony is like exactly one year from when we started sewing masks March 2020 to March 2021, the Atlanta spa massacre happened. And it went from aunties were protecting the world with masks to we were then distributing self-defense weapons to the Asian aunties. Uh, as as part, We usually had care items like baked goods and things like this. And suddenly we're distributing like coupons, hand alarms, and sharing uh, links to self-defense classes on Zoom. And it, 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 it felt like, okay, the pandemic might be subsiding, but this racial pandemic is not. And we're sort of like left in the aftermath of having to forge a new sense of protection. So that's sort of one arc that I go through in in it and this sort of terrible irony of having to to go from defender to defendee. But for me, the show is also that defense, right? Because I, I feel like Asian Americans are so invisible. There are moments where people would talk to us like we were just Amazon Prime. Like, I want 20 Macs that look like this. And I'm like, we're in a pandemic. Stores are not open. Cannot customize masks for you right now. I don't do this professionally, you know? And And there were interactions we had that were so transactional. And I feel like so much of me wanting to do the show was to put a face on this labor and really show just how hard this was. Um, Not because like we're more important than anybody else, but I think that it's important in this moment to understand that we weren't just sitting on our hands and doing nothing here where a lot of Asian Americans were stepping up. Christina, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome so much. Thank you.
0: That was playwright and performer Christina Wong speaking with KPBS Arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Preview performances of Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord begin tonight at the La Jolla Playhouse. Show opens Saturday.